Hi, it's Nick Brown, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease in Childhood. Welcome to the November Atoms. As always, I'm here with Rachel Agbeko, our Senior Editor. Welcome, Rachel. Hi, Nick. So, uh, another very interesting edition, I think, and the, the thread, uh, if there was one, uh, running through this month's papers, to my mind, was uh, of keeping things simple. So, in other words, uh, avoiding the need to make things more complex or complicated than they already are, um, but also not to completely simplify them um, beyond what is appropriate. Um, and certainly the papers we're going to be talking about have this common theme. I think we'll be talking to five papers, uh, and uh, I'd like to start with um, with a paper from the the University of Cambridge in the UK with first author Laurentia Auger um, and senior author Professor Kenong. And they collaborated with authors at Mee Johnson Nutrition Institute in Nijmegen, the Netherlands. And, and they inform us about um, the interaction of breastfeeding and weight gain. So briefly, the study uh, is a description as part of the Prospective Cambridge Baby Grow Breastfeeding Study uh, with babies born between the 2015 and 2018. Uh, and they interrogated this um, cohort to answer the question whether there's an association between weight gain and exclusive breastfeeding. So these are healthy babies uh, who are fed with the intention to exclusive breastfeeding from birth to the age of six weeks or more. Now, we would all like to see appropriate growth and um, breastfeeding, at least most of us do. So how do we measure and assess this, I suppose, would be the question, Nick. Yeah, that's an interesting question to which I think it's fair to say there isn't a single answer. So there are there are various growth charts, um, um, some of which might over or un underread early growth. Uh, and of course, then there's the definition of healthy growth, which itself is quite, um, oh, it's been debated at length over many years. We also know that feedback mechanisms and how information is used for decision making um, and more data isn't necessarily more or better information. We may need to measure less, as we have recently been reminded. So in that, in that area of uncertainty, Let's see what some data uh, gives us. So in this uh, cohort of uh, 148 infants who received at least two weeks of exclusive breastfeeding, there was a drop-off to 80 at 12 weeks. Uh, so that's quite a bit of a drop-off. And remember, these are all infants who were uh, intended to be exclusively breastfed. The authors found that um, this drop-off was associated uh, with a perceived uh, not enough weight gain, we might say. Um, so there was less weight gain in the cohort of children um, that dropped off. Again, it's, 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 it's observational data, so I don't want to overinterpret this, <clears throat> but there was a strong association between early, let's say, favourable weight charts um, whatever that means, but in, in terms of uh, consistent weight gain and, and continuation of breastfeeding. So, as we mentioned earlier on, potentially a positive reinforcement there, but whether the 
fall-off group um, was uh, deterred as a result of the um, less steady weight gain is is a question this study doesn't answer, but there's certainly an association in that direction. So another normal baby conundrum is um, fever after vaccination. In this edition, first author Ana Barredo Parado and senior author Santiago Mintegi at the Pediatric Emergency Department, University of Basque Country in Bilbao, Spain, investigated the occurrence of invasive bacterial infection infants brought to the emergency department with fever. They compared those that had been vaccinated up to 48 hours prior to presentation and those that had not. Here we have a simple measure, temperature, which may have a simple explanation. That is a simple post-vaccination response, which one would expect, or a more complex one, in other words, an invasive bacterial infection. So it's enticing, isn't it, to have just one measure, um, uh, temperature, and then go, oh, this is fever, okay, and then what? So can we use information uh, that is also available around the context when that temperature was taken, uh, especially uh, when we're looking at, um, at least in high-income countries, uh, a low um, prevalence of uh, invasive bacterial infection in babies. Uh, we don't want to miss meningitis. Uh, equally, we don't want to overburden uh, this population with unwarranted sepsis investigation. The authors have given us some uh, data to uh, help us uh, with this conundrum. So they recruited about 1,500 infants, of which 100 or so, 180 or so, had received a vaccination in the previous 48 hours. And this group of infants showed no invasive bacterial infection, um, and there were fewer with a urinary tract infection as well. So small numbers, and there's always to uh, a reason to be cautious, but it suggests that you might use some of our Bayesian thinking and say, what um, can we do with this one simple measure in the context of vaccination? So it may be that uh, it's not necessarily right uh, to go full um, guns blazing with a, a full sepsis investigation in this group. Um, and our guidelines might need to reflect that. From babies to older children, let's talk about systems approaches that have worked in lower middle income countries for the under fives and neonates specifically, and have the potential to be effective in other age groups and regions. So Nick, what you're talking about is the WHO Integrated Management of Childhood Illness, which is aimed to reduce preventable death and increase health mostly in the under fives, and as you said, in low middle income countries. I was interested to read on the um, WHO Child and Health and Development Unit webpage uh, that, and I quote, uh, that over the years, programme reviews have shown that IMCI implementation is influenced by different political, epidemiological and social contexts. Then this bit, mostly, I was thinking about the three major determinants of effective implementation coverage are political leadership to ensure an enabling environment, strengthened health systems based on empowered, recognised, motivated, supplied and supported frontline health workers, and empowered communities that can hold systems accountable and utilise IMCI services. So it comes back to people and their behaviour in a well-supported environment. Simple, really. 
Indeed, simple, um, uh, with just a little uh, hint of irony there. So um, to extrapolate this, Susan Karai and colleagues at the WHO Regional Office for the European Region outline the areas we might also focus on. So that's primary care, the adolescent age group, and not all is necessarily well in Europe. They draw attention to the recently published WHO pocketbook of primary healthcare for children and adolescents for the European region, based on evidence-based guidelines for health promotion, disease prevention and management. So what struck you is that the key messages, um, what are they trying to uh, improve, standardise, enhance um, across the continents, Rachel? I think it behooves us um, in uh, higher income countries not to be um, complacent. Uh, There's work to be done uh, and uh, specifically in the areas of primary care, preventative care, um, mental health care. And I was thinking about that it's not just about the interventions but also valuing that work um, and valuing that work and the people that are doing the work, uh, being able to uh, have them appropriate funding and an environment uh, and a robust infrastructure to deliver. Maybe we should sort of reframe and sort of simple interventions uh, and simple in inverted commas that oral medication might be more appropriate than intravenous or watchful waiting might be more appropriate than giving antibiotics. So simple in the sense of interventions per se but maybe more valuable uh, in the uh, in the long run. Now, the last two papers uh, we can discuss uh, relate to topics that are hospital-based. Just having said that, we need to value the primary care and <laughs> preventative care. Um, uh, we, we do have uh, care in, in, in hospital, and we might uh, focus on that a bit now. So one paper is related to DKA or diabetic ketoacidosis uh, and the other to varicella saucer exposure, uh, uh, also known as chickenpox, during cancer or bone marrow transplant uh, treatment. Now, the first one, so fluids in DKA management in children, Nick, it's fair to say that this topic has fired up some debate uh, between paediatric intensivists and diabetologists specifically. Yes, very fair indeed. So, yeah, this has been a, an old chestnut, I think. In a nutshell, two camps, the, li- the liberal and the cons- conservative fluid camps, both of wh- whom have um, stood fast by their, um, their, their, their practices. In reality, of course, we know that there's unlikely to be any um, or there's no difference as that has been revealed uh, even in the, la- in the in the larger studies, particularly the, the PECON study from uh, 2018, in which huge numbers of children were randomised to um, liberal conservative fluid management and based on a, a primary neurological outcome, there was no difference. Um, but of course, there may, might be more subtle um, differences that haven't yet been picked up. And might never be, um, certainly not by a clinical trial, it might need um, forms of radiology or other marker studies to identify these. Anyway, at the moment, the position is of equipoise, and that's sort of reinforced by a meta-analysis uh, by Dr. Ali Abdallah Hamid 
at the paediatric emergency department at Sidra Medicine in Doha, Qatar, um, who's provided a systematic review and meta-analysis on DKA fluid management in children. They analysed uh, the three eligible studies um, of uh, many, many more that were identified in the initial search and found no evidence that the rate of fluid administration has any effect on adverse neurological and other outcomes or length of hospital stay. Now, the last paper to highlight in this edition is the paper by joint first authors Dr Claire Curden and Dr Shardad Gower under the leadership of Dr Jessica Bates at the Paediatric Oncology Department at the Southampton Children's Hospital in the UK. Now, this group set out to compare the occurrence of chickenpox in children with cancer and or bone marrow transplant who received um, ricerda immunoglobulin, so VZIG, or acyclovir as a post-exposure prophylaxis or PEP. The first slide to say that this is this is a study that was not necessarily uh, hugely funded. So uh, kudos for brought this one in. Uh, it was a two-year multi-centre UK-based observational study. Uh, and it's also necessary to say in terms of context that uh, in the UK there is no routinely vaccination scheme against uh, visit the uh, so children will be exposed in the community. I found this all very refreshing and uh, I, I admire the author group's endeavour in that they've been working on this for some years now. Um, we published a piece a couple of years ago uh, where they were piloting the, the testing the feasibility of undertaking an RCT. Um, and I think partly because of perceived lack of equipoise, there was difficulty re recruiting. At around the time that this first study was undertaken, the, the UK supplies of IVIG um, were running low. Um, and therefore, that forced a, a, a more pragmatic approach and practice switched from IVIG, which has had been the tradition um, for a long time, to acyclovir, which is what is used in many other countries. Again, with a provider that this was observational data, um, they found that acyclovir was at least as efficient, possibly better, with fewer side effects, unsurprisingly. The IVIG, in other words, immunoglobulin stroke antibody treatment. And it reinforces the, to my mind, that the, this step was a positive one and that this old obstacle can now be removed from the scenery. And I wonder whether there was something going against the grain, as in, uh, we know that severe uh, chicken pox uh, infection or um, Varicella zoster virus infection in children with immune compromise um, can be really severe um, uh, and lead to death. And then therefore, maybe it's better to prevent rather than in treat. Treatment uh, might be felt to be better with the immunoglobulins uh, rather than acyclovir. And here we sh it's shown that actually that's not the case. Um, uh, and acyclovir will suffice. Thanks very much. Exactly. No more evenings spent frantically trying to ring transfusion for the last bag. And um, yeah, very refreshing all round. So there's a good selection of topics from, from the November issue. Be sure to check out the Atoms article and the rest of the papers at adc.bmj.com as usual. And subscribe, please, to our podcast in your 
preferred platform or app to get this podcast and the latest um, from our group. If you like the podcast, you can also leave us a rating and a review on the ADC podcast page on iTunes. And you can find a link to it in the description of this podcast. This helps more people find us and hopefully enjoy what we're discussing. Thanks so much. Thanks as always, Rachel. And uh, see you next month. Bye for now.